and seek refuge in him from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. And I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad is the last messenger of Allah. In the previous session where we were looking at different Islamic issues, uh, we looked at the cliché Islam, which Islam was spread by the sword, was it spread by the sword? And we looked at the rationale for polygamy, as well as arranged marriages, uh, child marriages, and the permission which is given to Muslim males to marry non-Muslim females, and the fact that Muslim females are only allowed to marry Muslim males. In this session, we'll be continuing to look at issues concerning women. Uh, we'll be looking at the issues of hijab, the veiling of the Muslim woman, which is a symbol of oppression. We'll also be looking at the right to divorce, which is something restricted to males or not, and um, women's rights uh, with regards to witnessing crimes, etc., and contracts, as well as their rights with regards to the inheritance laws. Uh, and these are all areas which those uh, who seek to paint a negative image of Islam like to focus on as areas wherein there is evidence or appears to be evidence that women are oppressed. Uh, that is, Muslim women are oppressed. And from our previous talk, we pointed out that, in general, the mistakes which come up in understanding the position of women in Islam with regards to various laws, legal systems, is that there is a tendency to want to look at Muslim women in the light of Western society where Western society has taken certain, uh, certain directions, uh, the family relationships are in a particular form, then to try to look at the Muslim woman within this context, obviously is going to create a distorted image. And what we invite people to, in general, is to look at the Muslim woman within the context of Islamic teaching. But we did point out that in Muslim countries, amongst Muslim peoples, one may find Muslims oppressing women, their women. And uh, this has to do with the culture of those particular areas, and not to do with the teachings of Islam in particular. So, with regards to the veiling of the Muslim woman. 
first and foremost, what we find is that in the society, historically, women have been in a position of weakness, meaning that they are subject to harm in society. This is real. And there is a direct relationship between the attacks on women, the molestation of women over the last hundred years, and the removal of clothes from women during that same period. If we look at Western women at the turn of the century, Western women at the turn of the century, we would see them dressed virtually like Muslim women, covered, as we told. And today we look at the Western woman as portrayed to the world as a whole, you know, which has become sort of the standard dress. This woman is virtually naked. In the United States, uh, in 1991, the figures released with regard to the molestation of women was that the amount of rape which, which took place in America in 1991 had crossed the 100,000 mark. This is 100,000 rapes. This is those that have been reported those reported, and they estimate that those which were not reported, because for a variety of different reasons, uh, women may fear to uh, report it, uh, the, the, they estimate that it would be someplace between seven and ten times that amount. So we're looking at a, an attack on women on a scale which is unimaginable when you try to bring that down to a daily rate. I mean, you're talking about something which is incredible. Of course, to some degree, some people argue, well, the reason why there's so many now is because people are report reporting them. Maybe, uh, you know, 90 years ago, 80 years ago, they weren't reporting them. Okay, to some degree, you know, people are more open to talk about these things, so that will account for a certain amount of the uh, report. But the police report which has to do with criminal cases where people are attacked and they are uh, found or they're, you know, they're, they're, the reports get directly to the, the police uh, files and they're coming in direct contact. The amount, the amount of rape that they are recording is still greater. I mean, there is, without a doubt, when you look at all the statistics, there is definitely a massive increase in rape. What Islam contains is that this is written, this has a direct relationship to the way that the woman is dressed. It has to do with the mentality of the men, etc., etc. But the way that women are dressed is, does have a major role to play in this stuff. This is why when Allah instructs women to wear uh, the outer garment, with Nina alayhinna min jalabi bihinna, Allah 
goes on to say, that they be known and not armed. So the major uh, goal that Allah has stipulated or pointed out in terms of the veiling of the woman, Muslim woman, is that she not be harmed, that she be known in the society and not be harmed. Because again, some people mistakenly think that, okay, wearing the veil is to become anonymous, meaning that nobody will look at you. No, of course, this society for a woman to cover herself up, she's going to be looked at. She's going to draw attention. People will look at her. But the idea is not, is not that they may not be seen, but that they be seen in a particular light. When a person sees a nun walking down the street, people will turn and look. The nun, how she's dressed. And if they see a woman walking down the street, you know, in a bikini, they will turn and look. The woman's walking down the street in a bikini. So in both cases, in both cases, they are trying to look. But they look different. There is a difference in the way they're looking in one case and the way they're looking in the other case. And I know personally, uh, when my wife uh, wore hijab and started in Toronto, um, we used to go on the subway or on the bus. People used to get up out of their seats and offer her. You know, even women get up and offer her. Some would ask her, you know, what order of nuns she belonged to. But it was obvious that the person dressed in this fashion, you know, was a person who was pious, religious. I mean, this is what, these are the implications of the dress, you know, that they have a particular outlook on life. They're not about exposing, inviting uh, sexual attraction, etc., etc. So, when they're dressed in this fashion, they are known. They have identified themselves as being a part of a system of belief which does not encourage and in fact opposes uh, extramarital relations, everything else is complete. So one, that they be known. And secondly, as Allah said, that they not be harmed. Because the reality is in, in uh, society where Everything is sold by way of the female body. You want to sell a Corvette or a Mustang, you know, which is a muscle car. What do you do? You put a picture of, or a woman in a bikini lying on top of the car. So basically speaking, if you're buying a car, you're supposed to want to know what is your horsepower and you know, what is the speed from zero to ten seconds how fast can it go and you know all the different things that are connected with it but instead what they want to show you is this woman half naked light up to the car what is what is the signal what are they telling you what, what are they telling you if you buy a mustang you 
you know, they may feel this is kind of oppressive. Why should we have to wear this? Because the understanding of the principles behind it is not there. It's not taught. It's a mistake in the educational system that an awareness and an understanding of the principles behind the job has to be uh, taught, has to be a part of the educational process. And with regard to the issue of divorce, which is another area wherein uh, Muslims are usually depicted, you know, as men being able to divorce their women by just saying, thou art divorced three times, and that's it. Divorce is just a very simple procedure from the Islamic perspective, and it's men, men, they can just say, you're divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced. Very, it means it makes marriage seem very trivial in the eyes of Western society. Of course, the process of divorce, we know, is just not that simple. It's not simply a person saying you're divorced three times, and that's divorce. The pronouncement can only take place under certain circumstances. It can only take place if the woman is not in her menses. Right? If a divorce is pronounced for a woman in her menses, then that divorce is not counted. So, these are conditions. There are conditions here. It's not just an automatic in the hands of the men. Secondly, if it's being pronounced in a period between men, it has to be a period in which no sexual relations is taken place. The requirement, another requirement, meaning that if that person has enough feeling for the woman that he's having this relationship, then divorce is not In the previous case, not in our mentions, because we know that uh, prior to or immediately prior to menses, a woman, many women, go through certain biological changes, etc which can affect their uh, thinking patterns, their way of expression, etc., etc., which may be the root cause behind the pronouncement of divorce. So to try to remove that as being one of the factors, Islam describes that it does not take place at a time of mention. Furthermore, after the pronouncement, there is a three months or three uh, periods of menses, three periods of menses have to take place, or three months if the woman is not menstruating, or if it's very irregular, uh, there is a waiting period. A waiting period during which the woman is not supposed to be expelled from her home. But again, in uh, the cultures of Muslim people in different places, uh, when a woman is divorced, maybe she automatically leaves her home and goes back to her home. But actually, this is not supposed to be the case. They're supposed to continue to live together to give them an opportunity to work with the So, first and foremost, the divorce is not an automatic. It isn't as complicated, maybe, as it is in the West, where people, you know, get into uh, divorce court 
and you know everybody starts washing everybody else's laundry in public. You know he was doing this and that, and you know all these other kind of things. He was very nasty. You know? Okay, in Islam we don't have that, but really it's that that's not that's not good anyway. It's harmful. It is relatively simple in the sense that it does start with the pronouncement of divorce, but in another sense, the marriage itself began with a simple acceptance, a proposal and an acceptance, which was pretty simple also. So there's no need to make it, you know, unnecessarily complicated, but at the same time, it is not trivial and uh, easy to the point where it's just three pronouncements and the divorce takes place. The other point is that the idea that the pronouncement of divorce is only in the hands of the man, this is incorrect. This is incorrect. Because, according to Islamic law, if a woman requests at the time of her marriage that it be a condition in the her concept of marriage that she also may pronounce the divorce, then she can pronounce it just as a man can, following the same principle. And if at any time in the marriage she asks her husband, will you give me the right to pronounce the divorce? And he says, okay. She can pronounce it. So it is not limited to the man. It is put initially in the hands of the man, but the woman can also get it through uh, request at any time in the marriage or putting it in her contract from the very beginning. Then we also have a situation where a woman, as a normal procedure, if she didn't put in the contract, she didn't request it, she can institute divorce proceedings by way of the court, which is known as Kula, where she requests, you know, uh, divorce. It goes to the court wherein the causes, etc., 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 you know, to ensure that it isn't over something which can be worked out, something trivial. But it confirms that the woman also has the right to pronounce or to request divorce. No, not exactly the same as True, it's not exactly the same. And this is taken into account the differences in their nature in general, the woman tends to be more highly strung and may react to things more quickly, more easily, so rather than put it in her hand initially, it is put in her hand indirectly, whereas the man tends to be, you know, more unemotional, not as easily emotionally moved, etc., tends to be more stable in that sense of thinking, uh, it is placed in his hand initially. In terms of the witnesses, and uh, before I go to that, the issue of a woman being married having to have a guardian, a mission that is uh, also raised, where for her marriage to be valid, the opinion of most of the Muslim scholars, there should be, a male guardian should, his consent should be given. 
This is primarily to protect the interests of the woman. It is not primarily to oppress the woman, though Muslims may use it in this way, where women are not allowed to marry the people of their choice. Okay, that is Muslim. But according to Islamic law, the principle is to protect the interests of the woman. Why? Because a woman who tends to judge things more emotionally can be fooled by a man. If it's just left up to her accepting this man or not, he can create an image, you know, of being this or being that, being very kind, being very, you know, he has this false face that he presents, which is attractive to the woman, but the real individual is somebody else. So by having a guardian, the job of the guardian is to check this person out, check the people who know him under other circumstances, check the family situation, etc., to get a clear picture of who this person is, to ensure that the daughter or the sister or the mother or whoever is marrying somebody genuine who will, in fact, take care of her property. So the issue of guardianship is for the protection of the woman, not to force her into marriages that she doesn't wish to uh, be involved in. In terms of backup to the divorce, the common practice of pronouncing three divorces, you know, um, which according to the Prophet Muhammad is the equivalent only to one, you know, where in uh, cultural circumstances, this issue of just pronouncing the divorce three times and just getting rid of the woman, this is the practice. This is the common practice. But as we said, that is the culture of people today. Not not his teaching per se. Now, the two witnesses, the issue of two witnesses being equal to a male witness. Now, this is something which is stated in the Quran that when one is writing contracts, one should have two witnesses. Uh, two males, or a male and two females. Allah goes on to say that so that one of the women may remind the other in case they forgot. Okay? Allah is saying, what is the purpose? Yeah? To remind. Why? Okay? In a society where women are pushed out into the workplace and have to deal and survive the same way men do, such a woman would want to question, why, 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 why? I can know about business just the same way a man does. Why do I need anybody to remind me? Yeah. In this abnormal situation, the woman being pushed out into the workplace, uh, her familiarity with contracts and these type of things may be, in a lot of cases, quite the same as that of men. But the norm in the world as a whole is that the men are the ones who are out of the home dealing with the contracts and these type of things, who are familiar with what is involved in contracts and tend to be able, better able to remember the terms of contracts, etc., etc. Whereas women tend to be in the home more in taking care of the home, home situation, raising the children, etc., etc. Uh, this is the norm. This has been the norm from the most ancient periods of history. It is only 
recently in the last hundred years that women have been pushed out into the workforce in a scale you know, unknown to history. So the Islamic principle there is for the norm, the norm of human society, the norm of what would be in Muslim society, where though women may work, not to say women are prevented from working, most of the work would be outside of the home would be carried on by the males in society. And to clarify that this is really restricted to particular areas. In a case where a woman has breastfed a man and his wife, her statement that she has breastfed the man and his wife is enough to annul that marriage. It happened in the time of the Prophet. A woman, a man came, one of the companions came to the Prophet and asked him, said that this woman came to us and told us that, you know, she best breastfed both of us. She was a former slave or whatever, you know, he felt she was like insignificant in society. Should I take her word? Prophet said, it's worth saying. Once that has been stated, and the circumstances obviously support it. It doesn't mean somebody flies from China, comes to visit you in, 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 in Montreal and tells you that you could say, oh, yeah. No. I mean, there are, there's, 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 uh, there are circumstances here which could support, yes, this person was around, they were known, so and so, yes, quite possible this took place. Once that is stated, a single witness, a woman on this part, is sufficient to nullify that marriage. So it is not across the board. It's not across the board that you need two witnesses, you know, females for a male. Or for example, there's a case of, of adultery or fornication. Yeah? Adultery or fornication. I mean, it says basically to apply the law you require four witnesses. These don't have to be four males. I mean, if four women saw, you know, people involved in fornication or adultery, I mean, nobody needs to remind each other about what they saw. I mean, what they saw with their own eyes is nobody has any problem remembering that, right? So in cases where, you know, of this nature, the witness of the, the woman's single witness in this out of one out of four is sufficient. So it's not just across the board. The other area, which is also raised by feminists, is the area concerning inheritance. Because we know it states in the Quran that for the male there is twice the portion of the female. The Zakari husband Sayyid. So it states the children. However, this has to be looked at, as we said again, in the context of the Islamic society. In the context of the Islamic society, a woman as a daughter, as a sister, as a mother, as a wife, as a grandmother, all of the circumstances that she may exist in, in society, there are males who are held responsible to look after her. There are males who it is their responsibility to take care of her. 
Not like Western society where a woman, you know, she falls on the welfare and so forth. In Islamic society, there will be some welfare system there to look after people who have no one to look after them. But this, this means that they have no relatives, no male relatives, also who can take care of them. In that circumstance, then the state steps in and takes care of them. Otherwise, such people are taken care of by the family. The family provides a uh, system of, of uh, looking after those who are weak or helpless or whatever. That is their responsibility. So the woman, in all of the various positions that she may appear in the society, has males who are responsible for her being taken care of. So consequently, when money is being divided, some money goes to her, which is her own right to do with as she pleases, as some money should go to her brother, which is his own right to do with as he pleases, but then an additional amount is given to the brother who is also responsible to take care of his sister. That additional amount is based on his responsibility with regards to his sister or his mother, etc., etc. And we know also that this is not just right across the board in all circumstances because in the same chapter, the fourth chapter of the Quran, where the inheritance laws are discussed. In verse 11, we have Allah saying, for each parent is one-sixth if the deceased left children. So, the division where uh, there are children and uh, responsibility now has been given to some of the children to look after the others, then the parents' division becomes equal. We also find if a man or woman left neither descendant or ascendant, but left a brother or a sister, each gets one sixth. If there are more than two, they equally share one third. So there are other of the, you know, away from the immediate inheritors uh, who will have their divisions uh, taken place on an equal basis. Wherein, for example, there are other family members around who would look after the females uh, in that circumstance. So, we know that it is not just across the board. In all cases, two to one. No. It is primarily for children, yes. But outside of the area of the children, it ends up, in the case of parents, brothers, sisters, etc., they end up dividing on an equal basis. The other area is concerning women again, it's the area in modern times, that area concerning abortion. The right of the woman to decide what happens to her body. That she has a child in her womb, she wants to abort this child. The argument today is her body, she can do you know, with her body, her right to be able to do with her body as she pleases. Islamic law says, no. Yes, it is your body, but the child that is inside your body is not you. It's not the same as your arm or your leg or your hair. You know, something which is growing from your body, you want to cut your hair, nobody can say, okay, don't cut your hair. Of course, again, 
Muslim culture says women should not cut their hair. This is culture. Islamic teachings permit women to cut their hair. Cut their hair. Only they should not cut it in the styles of nails. So they look masculine, etc. No. So what we're talking about here is that the embryo growing inside of the woman is not like her hair. She wants to cut it. She doesn't want to cut it. Right? Or any other part of her body. She's hers. The embryo growing inside of her body, it doesn't even share the same blood. That the embryo, the child that is born, can have a different blood type from the mother altogether. Why? Because, you know, in, in common understanding, you know, mass of the people think that it's the blood of the woman, her blood vessels actually go into the child, and the child is being fed directly by the blood. This is not the case. Her blood vessels uh, pass by this membrane, this is where the placenta uh, plays a particular role in carrying the nutrients. The blood vessels of the child is inside the placenta. The placenta is embedded in the womb, the walls of the womb, and food is transferred across the membrane that separates the placenta from the wall of the womb. So the blood of the woman does not enter into the child, nor does the blood of the child enter into the woman. That child is a separate entity within her. And this is why we as Muslims, we say that we uphold the rights of women more than Western society which claims to be you know, liberationist freedom of women, etc., etc. Because we, that, that child is a girl, we say you cannot kill that child. In the West, where they're wanting to fight for women's rights, all this other thing, they give the woman the right to kill the child. So the child, of the, the female, can be killed. But where is the right being protected? That child is being killed. And what happens in society places like China and India, where issues of overpopulation, you know, on one hand is China, which has led the government to restrict uh, children to one per couple, Right? The Chinese couple know they can only have one child. They all want a male because the male will provide strength to the family. He can get out in the field. He can, you know, so they want male. What happens is they get an ultrasound. The woman is pregnant. They're able to determine this is a, a girl. They avoid the girl. So there's a change in the population, you know, dynamics there in China over the last. 20, 30 odd years, a major change has been taking place. The number of men are now you know, more than the women in that society. This is something abnormal. Go around the rest of the world, the women outnumber the men. Under normal circumstances, women will outnumber men. Biological reasons, etc. They live longer. But in China and in India, again, where a woman is a curse for family because you have a female now to get her married you're going to have to pay all this money so she's a burden whereas if you have a male he's going to bring in money right so again it's very common in, in India amongst the Hindus that you know midwives where they're not they don't have money to do ultrasound midwives are paid so much to deliver the child and paid an extra amount to kill the female 
and they've been in the newspapers, they've been exposés where they've talked about midwives and practicing and doing it. They will strangle the child or whatever, cause the child to die at birth. They pay their extra for that. And of course, those who cannot afford the ultrasound, etc., then they're ultrasound determining the girl and abortion. So, female children are being killed in mass in China and India today. Islam prohibits it. So we can say, Islamically speaking, we protect the rights of the women more so than these other societies which allow abortion. Islam prohibits the woman from aborting the child. Yes, according to Islamic law, a fetus, an embryo, is not considered to be a human being until the beginning of the fifth month. So abortion which takes place before the fifth month would not be considered the taking of a human life. However, according to Islamic law, it is prohibited to take any life without just cause. Prophet Muhammad said that we should not take birds as our target, animals as our target. You know, you bought a new hunting rifle, and you go out in the wild there and you start shooting birds, shooting squirrels, whatever, you know, checking your sights. No, not allowed in Islam to make animals the target just for fun, for practice, or whatever. It's forbidden. The whole mentality which produced this, this safari mentality, where Westerners used to go into Africa and places like this, you know, in, in India, and go off and kill them and stuff, or elephants, or a rhino, or something, to get a picture of themselves, you know, one foot on the dead animal and gun in the hand, you know, photograph you put on, you know, above your fireplace, you cut off his foot or his horn or something, and you stick it again on the wall someplace. You know, this kind of mentality, where animals are, you know, killed for sport, which is forbidden in this matter. Uh, we are only allowed to kill animals, one, if they're dangerous to us, they're life-threatening, two, if we're killing them for food, or three, if we're killing them for meat, clothing. Right? We don't agree with these people who say, no, you can't eat birds and all this stuff. Again. Of course, the message that these people are using to kill the animals, you know, they show how they kill these uh, otters and the... Um, what is it, uh, the names and the others, you know, where they take clubs and they pack them and, and of course it's horrible. Islam doesn't support that at all. But to kill the animal out of human need, yes, human need is given precedence also and over animal life. We kill them for a need, not just for sport. And, of course, the issues of killing animals, you know, we have, uh, what's the name there in um, France, what's the name uh, British Bardo, yes, you know, campaigning against Muslims, these bestial Muslims killing sheep and, you know, every evil adha comes along and they're killing all these sheep, you know, she's protecting animal rights and, you know, up, you know she's been, she got fined for uh, maligning Muslims over these issues. But studies have shown that the humane methods of the Westerners, right, where they get a stun gun, right, they have a, a gun which has a piston in it, right, and they put a bullet without, without you know, just, a, just the casing so the powder will explode, then it fires off this piston, smashes the animal in the head, knocks it unconscious, 
then they string it up and they cut the neck and they say, this is humane, right? Not like the Muslims, we cut the neck while the animal is alive. This is their argument. And common sense. I mean, of course, nobody can go into an animal's head and ask him, is it hurt more to get your head knocked in and get your neck cut or just cut your neck? You know, we can't ask them, they can't tell us. So we have to use our own common sense in the sense of our nervous system that's not similar. Now, if somebody comes and slugs you in the head enough to knock you out, is this painful or isn't it painful? You know, I mean, nobody has to, you know, make any special studies to determine how painful it is, you know, getting punched in the head and knocked out. And practically speaking, we know if you have a very sharp knife or razor blade or something like this, you can run your hand and it cut yourself and not even be bleeding and you don't even realize you cut until you see blood dropping dripping in all some places. So it's very clear that a very sharp knife cutting is easy. It will cut without you feeling, without you realizing, without you knowing it. One of the popular ways of suicide is what? You go into a nice warm bath, right, and you take out your razor blades, you cut your wrists and, you know, pass away. Why do people choose this? Right? Those who don't like the fat of blood, they can't do it. But those who don't mind, you know, they choose this. Why? Because you, you go away in a very nice and gradual kind of, you know, without pain. So, we can say from practical human experience, etc., it's very clear that to slaughter an animal by sharpening the knife, very sharp knife, In terms of the pain and the suffering, all different things. So Muslims are far more humane with regards to the killing of animals than the non-Muslims would have us believe. But back to the issue of abortion, from an Islamic perspective, what we're saying here is that though one may abort before the fifth month, we are still taking a life. It's not a human life. But we're still taking a life, which is prohibited. And the only time that we can take that life is, legitimately, is if that life is now threatening the life of the mother. In the case where she has what is called an ectopic pregnancy, pregnancy in the fallopian tube, where if that child were to develop, it would kill her, yes, abort at that point to save her life. This is the basic circumstance under which under which abortion is permissible. Some scholars have also included circumstances of rape. If it's in the very early stages, the say before the child starts to take form, if it's still in the, the uh, plump stage where it, the arms and head and nose, all these things are not differentiated. Up until that point, you know, so abort for the, out of, uh, uh, in cases of rape, uh, some scholars have permitted it, especially in societies, places like in Bosnia, you know, where, you know, um, people become very intolerant, you know, the, the Serbs rape Muslim women in, in a massive scale, in a massive scale, and they uh, held them, making sure that they would, you know, they, that they were, till they were pregnant, they raped them continually in a massive scale, in order to destroy the families to destroy the family because in that society as in many Muslim societies because of the fact that you know the issues of 
chastity are held high, especially in the case of women. Now this is something again, you know, where there is something of a double standard you can find, unfortunately, amongst Muslims who have emigrated to North America, where they'll be very careful about their daughters, you know. I know this is in England, for example, where they have many girls' schools, but the boys' schools, they don't have. So the girls' schools, to protect the girls, but the boys, they can do their thing, doesn't matter. No one knows, doesn't show. As for a girl, if she gets pregnant, you know, this, so it's double standard, you know. But anyway, the point is that what that mentality that comes out of that is that if a girl is raped, a woman is raped, though it is raped, they tend to blame the woman. Even in a circumstance like in Bosnia where the women have been raped in large scales, you'll find the male still blaming the woman, not wanting to have anything to do with them, so they become like ostracized pariahs in the society and they become, you know, they become fresh meat for the missionaries. Because the missionaries will focus on these, they set up special camps, counseling and everything for them, you know, to look after these people. Huge numbers of them right now being Christianized. I mean, of course, the gene was very weak in the first place, but now they're under the onslaught of Christian propaganda in the refugee camps and etc. inside Bosnia as well as outside Bosnia. So, in the cases where, you know, women raise this issue to Muslim scholars, in cases like this where they've been uh, raped, would, whether it's permissible for them to abort the child in order to save their own deen, ultimately, to save themselves within that society, some scholars have permitted it. Uh, in the case of artificial insemination, Artificial insemination. Oh, and I should add to this, you know, in the case of um, of contraception, because uh, it sort of relates to abortion, I'll just deal with it at the same time, that from an Islamic perspective, you know, contraception is permissible. It's not preferable, as has said, you know, marry and have many offspring. Right, this is the encouragement. We're encouraged to marry and have many offspring. So, the issue of uh, contraception, which is to reduce the offspring, is against this sunnah. On the basis of that, it is not preferable. But, we know that Prophet though he told us to have many children, companions came to him and asked him whether they could practice a form of contraception which was done at that time, and he permitted it. So on the basis of that, we have to accept that it is permissible. Now, the method which may be used cannot include those which have been scientifically proven to be harmful. If there are methods which scientific research has shown to be consistently harmful to women, then to use these methods would not be legitimate. They have to be ones which, as far as is known, are safe. But as a choice uh, for human beings, Muslims, uh, contraception is permissible. But abortion would not be considered as a mode of contraception. Because when they 
think about uh, birth control in the Western context, this includes abortion. Birth control from the Islamic concept does not include abortion. An area related to this is what they call artificial insemination, where the sperm of a man, the ovum of a woman, put together in a petri dish, when it takes, develops, then it's put inside the woman. Okay. This may be done, Islamically permitted, if a woman has difficulty uh, conceiving due to problems, she may have cysts or whatever, the, the eggs are there but they can't get into the womb to be fertilized, etc. So this is an assistant. Her eggs are combined with her husband's sperm and the embryo put back in her womb. That is permissible according to Islamic law. This is only assistance. But any other form where it involves the sperm of another man, because her husband is sterile, for example, so you get another man's sperm and mix with her, uh, her ova, this is not acceptable. Or to take her husband's sperm, her ova, and put it in her mother's womb, or her sister's womb, or her daughter's womb, or anybody else's womb, this is not permissible. That child will not be considered to be the child of those parents. In, in from Islamic perspective. And we know full well, you know, that in an Islamic context, you know, if a woman breastfeeds the child of another woman, then that child becomes her child also. In the sense that that child cannot marry her own children. This is the son or daughter by riba'a or by breastfeeding according to Islamic law. So how much more if that child grew in her womb? So if that child grows in the, in the womb of the sister or even in the womb of the daughter. So from an Islamic perspective, the only permissible method is that of assisting that woman and the man by combining the sperm and the ova outside of the womb and placing it back inside of that same womb. The last issue, I'll just touch it on it, touch on it again, from an Islamic perspective, you know, organ donation is permissible. Permissible is permissible. Donating one's body to science, no. That you end up on some uh, doctors uh, as a cadaver being cut up your head going someplace your arms without people experimenting on you no but an organ taken from your body to save the life of another human being is permissible whether you are living or whether you have died meaning for example your relative kidneys have failed you have the same blood type, your kidney can save their life, yes, it's permissible for you to take one of your kidneys and give it to them. So while living or even after death. As we say, it is only taking what is necessary, taking absolutely what is necessary to help save another life. And this is on the basis that 
harm, uh, if a small harm prevents a greater harm, then it is permissible to <coughs> do that smaller harm. The, the harm which comes from you taking out a kidney, because it does harm you, is less than the harm which comes from your relative, your brother, your sister, or whoever dying, the greater harm, so to save their life, it is permissible. Okay, those are um, the issues which are mostly concerning uh, female, uh, oppression of female, etc. And we've dealt with also uh, organ donation and addition. Inshallah, we'll pause here for any questions that you'd like to raise uh, before going into our final phase of um, issues. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, two issues, uh, that of fertility drugs and uh, female circumcision. Fertility drugs, where these drugs are used to, you know, increase the production of ova, etc. This is an assistance. You know, in general, this is not, there's no objection, stomachly no objection from it. Uh, in the case, there's another issue that comes up, related some, somewhat to it, where they take uh, embryos, they save these embryos, right, because they make three, four embryos and, and then they end up saving them. They put one in, you got pregnant, you had a child, and they still have these other embryos. Or, you know, in cases where, for example, the, um, the man and the woman, they divorce afterwards. You know, and the, the embryos are still there, a woman is fighting to get these embryos to put back inside herself, etc. You know, the idea of saving these embryos, really, sonically speaking, would be abhorrent. You know, you produce the embryo, what is necessary to try to fertilize, but to, to save bunches of them, putting them on ice, holding them for years and things like this, this would be considered abhorrent islamically. The other issue, which was that of female circumcision, Uh, the other issue, which is that of um, female circumcision, we know that according to Islamic law, Prophet Muhammad permitted it. When he came to Medina, it was being done there. It wasn't done in Mecca, it wasn't known, it wasn't practiced there, but it was a custom in Medina. And he, Prophet permitted that it be done. But he instructed that only a small portion be taken. Meaning, as it was interpreted by the early scholars, that only the tip of the clitoris may be removed. This is just to put a little scar tissue there to decrease its sensitivity. And, you know, similar to the scar tissue that comes around the male organ when the male is circumcised. Um, this much Islam has permitted, not instructed, but permitted. Now the practice common in places like Egypt uh, and, and uh, Sudan, Somalia, other parts of the 
Muktamura as well as the Muktamura. Muktamura, where you know it involves removing parts, body parts, for in the of the woman's private parts, sewing them up, and all these other kinds of things. These, which have been classified in general as genital mutilation, are against Islamic law. Islam is opposed to this completely. So, this uh, thing which has been leveled on human beings, on, on Muslims, as being, you know, promoters of the oppression of women through this genital mutilation, is actually, in fact, uh, not, it's not correct to attribute it to Islam, but to Muslim practices, which are unacceptable, yes. Those who want to take the position that even, even the amount which is permitted by Islamic law, that even this should be opposed, of course, uh, all we can say is that's your opinion. If Muslim society agrees and feels that they accept this, then that is their opinion. There is no harm coming to the woman where it stays within the bounds of Islamic practice. There is a hadith cited by Al-Albani in his book about how to perform prayers, in which he stated that there is raising the hands with every takbir during the prayer. What about the raising of the hands uh, during takbir when one goes to sujood? Well, there is, you know, general statement of raising of the hands, well, it's not really related to our topic here, but um, general uh, raising of the hands at the time of takbir, but we know uh, when coming out of Rukur, that the raising of the hands takes place there, and not at the time of making the takbir before going into sujood. But sitting up from sujood and going back into sujood, there are authentic narrations in Abu Dawood and the Tirmidhi, which identify that on some occasions the Prophet also raised his hands there. What kind of sexual relations is permissible in Islam? What about using the using of condoms during sex? I think this is already covered. Our sexual relations are whatever does not include uh, anal sex. Uh, outside of that, this is, I mean, Islam has not uh, prohibited anything else. If a woman sights the moon, is her testimony sufficient? Yes. Because again, this is not an issue which requires uh, somebody to remind somebody who forgets. As for witnesses, by taking your explanation of why the ratio is two to one, then some may say that since women are working, their condition is, this condition is nullified, but the law of the law cannot be nullified. So as I said, the law of the law Therefore, there might be other reasons that only Allah knows, right? Well, Allah said in the Quran is that they might forget. So we can't, we cannot say that this isn't the reason. Allah said it's the reason, then it is the reason. It's not to say that there may not be other reasons. I cannot say no. But the primary reason is this. Now, the fact that there is a distortion of the role of the female in society, in a particular society, Western society today, which does not represent the majority of humankind, 
is not sufficient to say we nullify this law because the circumstances are different here. No. The law remains because the masses of humankind, the situation remains the same. That's how it is. The laws of Allah came for the generality, not for the specific. If one pronounced divorce on one's wife, when one had knowledge of the rules of divorce, but it was done out of anger, and then he changes his mind or comes back to his right state of mind, does this count as one divorce? Uh, most scholars hold that it doesn't count as divorce. If it was done out of anger, or if it is done um, not meaning divorce, but as a threat, for example, that these are not classified as divorce. How would you respond to those who say rape is not about sex but about hatred for women and gaining power over women? Well, I would say that gaining power over women, Western society in general, has men in power over women. You know, um, the control of the fashions, the control of, you know, so much in the society, there is control over women. So, those who want to say, well, there's a hatred for women and gaining power over women, this is what's behind sex. Okay, psychologists, have, you know, sociologists or psychiatrists have analyzed some rapists and, okay, they've expressed this. But to say, this is the motivating factor. It has nothing to do with sex. I think this is quite far-fetched. This is quite far-fetched. Because hatred for women, you know, can be fulfilled by battering them to death. So many other things you can do. I mean, what could be done? Can a woman who wishes to marry a good Muslim man of good character change her wali if his basis of rejecting this prospective groom is superficial? Wrong. A rejection of the, on the basis of different ethno-cultural or socio-economic backgrounds. Yes, it is possible that the wali, you know, if the objections are not based on Islamic um, considerations, if the objections are un-Islamic, then the woman does have the right to seek a recourse by turning her, her, uh, her guardianship over to the courts or over to the leader of the community where there is no Islamic courts. Question on meat. I heard that there's a new way to kill animals in Canada where the slaughterhouses put the animals on a belt, one by one, and the machine kills the animal. Knowing this, is it still permissible to eat the meat of the people of the book? The issue of whether they kill it on a, on a belt or whether they kill it one by one or by a machine, you know, the point is they're killing the animal. They are people of the book. As long as the neck of the animal is cut whilst the animal is alive, then, according to Islamic law, it is permissible to eat those animals. In the case of pregnancies where the life of the woman is in danger, is it obligatory for a woman to get an abortion? Obligatory. Well, according to Islamic law, they would intervene. If a woman chose to allow that child to be born at, at the expense of her own life, 
Uh, that is between her and Allah. But as long as the Islamic legal system recognizes and sees her life in danger, they would step in and abort the child to save her life. Because you see, a woman, you know, on an emotional basis, you know, very strong emotional basis, you know, could decide, make this kind of decision to die for the sake of giving birth to the child, to please her husband or whatever else, you know, but really, you know, from the Islamic perspective, you know, uh, if she survives, then it's possible for her to have other children. If she dies, that's it. You know, her life is given precedence. Her complete life is given precedence over a potential life. Please clarify, is abortion allowed before the five, fifth months of pregnancy? Please state where is the source of the embryo becomes a life form only after five months. Okay. <coughs> abortion is not allowed before the five months of pregnancy. Abortion is not allowed in the time period. We said in cases of threat to the mother's life, yes, this is when abortion comes in. In the case where some scholars permitted in the case of rape, uh, this is uh, again, those scholars will say if it is before the fifth month. Where does the issue of the fifth month comes from? You can find it in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, the Hadith, the Prophet said that the child, each one of us, comes together for 40 days in the mother's womb like an oily uh, fluid. Then 40 days like a leech-like cloth. Then 40 days like a clump of flesh. And then the angel comes and blows the spirit into the child. Yesterday you discussed the issue of a Muslim man marrying a Jew or a Christian. And Yusuf Ali's translation uses the word shape when describing the woman of the book among whom Muslims may marry. What exactly does shape mean? Well, this is a condition which I neglected to mention. Thank you for mentioning this, because it does clearly say, not only in the translation, this is the Arabic, Al-Muhsanat min al-Ladina kitab Muhsanat, this is a chaste woman meaning a virgin. A woman who is a virgin, or a woman who whose uh, background is that of marriage. Her relationship is that of marriage. She is divorced now, or she is widowed, you know, this woman, where her sexual relations were within the bounds of marriage only, or she has not had sexual relations. These are the women that we may marry of the women of the book. Of course, in practical terms, because this is a point to consider, where today a woman who reaches puberty, you know, who reaches uh, her teens, etc., uh, who hasn't had sexual relations is looked at as some kind of oddball, something wrong with her, you know, uh, where, where in fact you'd be very hard-pressed to find such a woman, um, a non-Muslim woman, who is chaste, who is a virgin. I mean, it rules out. I mean, the brothers who come here from the Middle East, you know, or other parts of the Muslim world, India and Pakistan, who, you know, meet women in bars and they're going to go and marry these women because they just love the way they were dancing or whatever, you know. They just go, oh, I've got to marry this one. You know, this kind of attitude is, is, is totally wrong. You know, and Islamically speaking, it is not within the bounds of what has been defined as what is permissible for a Muslim man to marry of the women of the book. So thank you for uh, reminding me of that point, that chastity is a, a condition 
for marrying women from the people of the book. If we say that there should be a separation in education, what can be said of women going out of their homes in order to attain education in schools? Furthermore, what, would, what about pursuing a career in a co-ed environment? Well, as I said, separation in education, this is a basic principle in Islamic society, wherein uh, once the children reach the age of around 7 uh, to 10, then they should be separated in their schools. Separated if possible, if one can afford to have separate schools for the girls and the boys, yes. Or at least they're separated in their classrooms, you know, uh, the, the boys in the front, the girls in the back, you know. Some separation uh, should be maintained within the schools, especially those schools where they don't have the, the means to provide completely separate education for males and females. Now, in this environment, in this society, where schools are not available, Muslim schools are not available, um, to say, well, since there isn't separate education available, women shouldn't be educated, this is social suicide. This is social suicide. Because for us to develop a community here, because ultimately as Muslims, we should not see ourselves as being uh, establishing Muslim families where we just live on our own, you know, you have your own apartment, or you have your own house, and you maintain your Islam between you and your wife and your children. You know, this is your responsibility. Beyond that, this is incorrect. To look at ourselves living this way, your neighbors are all non-Muslims, all around you. The environment, the neighborhood, everything, this is all a non-Muslim environment. For you to live like this, this is a cursed situation. Prophet said, that he absolves himself from a Muslim who dies in the midst of the disbelievers. This is a situation which is not permissible according to Islam. It is a requirement, it is a must that Muslims who are here, for example, here in Montreal, that they attempt to create neighborhoods, Muslim neighborhoods, where your neighbors are other Muslims. You're living in an area, not creating ghettos. And I'm not talking about creating ghettos, I'm talking about Muslim neighborhoods. Right? Where the majority of the people in this area are Muslims, where you can control your environment, where your children are interacting with other Muslim kids, your wives are interacting with other Muslim women, you know, your school is in that neighborhood, your master is in that neighborhood. This is what we should be developing. This is the hijra. This much of hijra remains an obligation of, on Muslims in the West here. Because for us to live these separate individual uh, scattered lives uh, is, as I said, something cursed. And what it does, of course, is it promotes the destruction of our families, the generations of our children going to non-Muslim schools, etc., growing up with all non-Muslim friends, etc., who in the end become non-Muslims. This is what we're doing. We have the history of people coming here to, to Canada and to America, you know, for the last uh, 70 years, uh, where we have whole generations that have disappeared totally. Out west, you can go out into Alberta and, and you know, another part of the state, and so you can find where they have just disappeared. People came, and they're no longer there. It is essential. Hijra 
remains an obligation on Muslims until the last day. Prophet Muhammad said, Hijra will not end until the acceptance of repentance ends. And Tawbah will not end until the sun rises in the west. So Hijra remains an obligation on Muslims. It is the Sunnah of Rasulullah We know from the Sirah that this was the turning point for Islam from the period of oppression in Mecca where Muslims were scattered, they were under pressure, etc., etc., when the Hijra was made to Medina and the community was formed, this was the beginning of the end for disbelief in that country, in that land, and for the spread of Islam throughout the world. So, this is something that we must work towards and we must develop. Meaning, we need to have Muslim female gynecologists in Muslim clinics. A Muslim clinic is not different from a non-Muslim clinic in the sense of what goes on there, in the sense that, you know, treatment, medical treatment takes place. The non-Muslim can come in there and be treated medically as well as Muslims. So it's not only Muslims only exclusive. We don't have any sign on the door which says Muslims only. But if a female comes into that clinic and says, I want this male gynecologist to, you know, we say, no, no, we have limitations here. Gynecology, this is a specialty for Muslim women. So for us to say, we not have our girls go to school and study. We don't need any female gynecologist. Then your wife gets pregnant. She has to see a gynecologist. And... You're telling her you're very much, you know, practicing the deen. Yes, she should cover herself and, you know, don't go out exposing yourself. But then now you're telling her to go into this office and take off her clothes, expose herself, and have this man put his hands in her private parts. And then you're saying, cover yourself? What is the meaning of this? Women shouldn't get education? What is the meaning of this? This is what I refer to as social, Islamic suicide. This is a society committing suicide by denying its women to gain this education so that they can protect the other women in society. This is essential. So, the idea of women, because it means now there's a harm here. Yes, women going into these universities, there's harm. In the school, there's harm. But the greater harm of us having to put our women in the hands of non-Muslim men is far greater than the harm that comes from the women going into this situation. And of course, when we send a, 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 a daughter into college or whatever to study, we should send daughters who we feel have the dean, you know, under control. Not a daughter who is kind of shaky-shaky, you know, she's, <laughs> you can see her, she's Michael Jackson at home, Madonna and everything else. You're going to put her into this situation? No, of course. It's a suicide, yes, keep her home. You have one of those, keep them home, don't send them to school. Right? <laughs> Until you can get her in line, let her understand who she is as a Muslim woman, etc., etc., then you can put her into you know, these education systems, and inshallah she can survive, right, and come back with some knowledge that can benefit the community. What's the purpose of Muslim women in Muslim students' associations? Well, Muslim students' associations is uh, for women to be on campus, to be in studies, 
it is important that they be in contact with other Muslims. Specifically other Muslim women, and to whatever degree necessary other Muslim men, to protect their Islam on campus. Again, that's the value that is there, this is the environment, to try to create as much as possible within the student context, an Islamic environment for those students. So, you know, where the MSA is functioning, of course, properly, you know, with these Islamic guidelines, then we can see the value. I mean, where the MSA becomes just, you know, a party, you know, we get together and have our parties, socialize and this type of thing, and of course, we can raise this type of question. Please state the source which states that contraceptions are permitted and that artificial insemination is permissible. Well, we have a law, right? Uh, we have a law. The one about contraception, the, the hadith of Adal, these hadiths are well known. Anybody recall what book of hadith it's in? Well known, authentic hadith, a number of narrations. Uh, if this person needs it, I, don't, I can't quote it, which book, I, but it is from among the authentic books. It's well known, hadith. You know. uh, if they wish, I can dig it up for them exactly, the reference. Otherwise, um, the other issue of artificial insemination, this comes under the general category of what? In Islamic law, when we deal with things which are classified as ibadat, right, ibadat, worship, acts that are primarily worship, and we deal with things that are called muamalat, acts which are primarily not worship, but which may have aspects of worship connected to them. You know, the scholars divide things into these two basic categories. The rule concerning ibadat is that for you to do any act of ibadah, there must be a clear permit from Rasulullah to do it. Right? This is based on the principle that Prophet said, whoever brings anything new in this religion of ours is not accepted by Allah. Right? Innovation is. To protect against innovation, then the rule is that if you want to do anything, you must have a permit for it in the area of ibadah. But now in the area of mu'amalat, right, your day-to-day -day socio-economic interactions, which are not primarily ibadah, right, in this area, the rule is that all is permissible except that which is prohibited. That is the rule, based on the, on the statements of Allah in the Qur'an with regards to food, etc., etc., that it is all permissible except for these specific things which have been delineated. So that is the general rule according to Islamic law. This is one of the maxims of fiqh. So, when we look at the, kitchen, uh, the situation of artificial insemination, we have to question ourselves. Is artificial insemination ibadah or mu'amala? Obviously it's not ibadah, it is mu'amala. This is biological exchange, body parts, whatever these type of things. This is mu'amala, it's not ibadah. So, the sister who has asked for the source or the evidence, the permission, well, we don't say, where is the permission? We ask, where is the prohibition? In this case, because it's not ibadah, it is mu'amala, then to say it is not permitted, one has to bring evidence. To say it is permitted, 
is taking things as they are. What do you mean by Hijra? Hijra to a Muslim country? No, not necessarily. Hijra, as I mentioned, people here in Montreal, I said that the principle of Hijra stands for you here. I'm not meaning that everybody packs up their bags and heads out of Montreal. No. And for those who feel that this life has become so oppressive here, their children are being destroyed and they have the means to leave, they want to leave, it's perfectly permissible, justifiable. But for the mass of the people who can't do that or feel that they have a role to play here, then they should come together. The Hijra should be, as I said, to create neighborhoods, not necessarily from country to country. Because if we look at the Hijra in the time of Prophet there were two Hijras. One which was country to country, which was the first Hijra to Abyssinia, right? That was for survival. That didn't spread Islam. I mean, beyond the Najashi accepting Islam, I mean, it was not the turning point in the history. The turning point was the Hijra, which was internal, when they went from Mecca to Medina. This is Hijra within Arabia. <coughs> so people make a Hijra out of here to Muslim countries in the East or whatever, this is not going to change the situation here. It is for survival, those who wish to do it. But the one which is going to change the situation here in the country is the one which is the internal Hijra, where people come and create communities, neighborhoods, environments in which they can now impact on the society. During the three-month period after divorce is pronounced, would any sexual relations nullify the divorce? Are any sexual relations permitted during the period of that period of time? Okay. It is held by some scholars that just any form of sexual relation will nullify the divorce. means that the man has taken the woman back. But a number of other scholars hold, and it is within the, the, the schools of Islamic law, that that sexual relation, if sexual relation takes place, if it is not with the intention, expressed intention of taking the woman back, in and of itself it does not constitute nullification of the divorce. If we take an organ from the pig, or a, or a pig, is a Muslim, or can a Muslim pray while we have that organ? Yes. Is cloning permissible in Islam? If cloning doesn't involve human beings, you know, involving animals to increase or produce better breeds of animals or, or vegetation, etc., this is permissible. Where it involves human beings with the, with the intention of trying to prolong human life, you know, you grow a, another you. When you get sick, you can take your brain out and stick it in a new body. So, that other you that you're growing here is another human being. That's the reality. If you clone, it's another human being. It's not you anymore. So the idea that you can clone this other being and you keep him there ready for you, for, you know, when the time comes, right, this is nonsense. You're killing another human being to prolong your own life. Is it permissible for women to remove hair from their face or legs? Well, in the case of legs, yes. In the case of hair, removing hair from the face, we have specific prohibition in the case of what Prophet had said about women who pluck their eyebrows, which is part of facial hair. Uh, as such, to remove the hair from the face would not be permissible, 
unless the scholars have seen, have stated that the hair on the face reaches the point where it is making them look like a man, they're growing a beard now, mustache, you know, their hair is going across their eyebrows, they got thick, heavy eyebrows, something like this which is disfiguring them, you know, disfiguring them in those kind of cases that the movement here is permissible. In other cases where it's light here, here, and that, it's permissible for them to bleach it instead so it's no longer visible. Last question. Yeah. Two sisters. The younger sister... Two sisters. The younger sister's granddaughter and the elder sister's youngest son want to marry. Okay. I'll have to think about this one here. I'm going to stop here and look at it and then, you know, figure out what, you know, uh, figure out what it is exactly. We'll answer this in the next session, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma wa alhamdulika. Asharu wa la ilaha 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 ila